Welcome to the I Am In podcast. We are excited to announce that this summer, 2022, we will be recording our weekly summer speaker each Wednesday night at the Boise Institute. We will hear messages from various individuals sharing their life story in front of a live audience of young adults. Each speaker will share key times that God manifest Himself and prevailed in their life. It's the reason they continue to say, I am in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am Michelle Burke, the host of the I Am In podcast and an instructor at the Boise Nampa Institute of Religion. Brother Jim Edwards is the director of the Institute Program of Religion in the Treasure Valley. In college, he played on the offensive line of Brigham Young University's football team and was a hammer thrower on the track team. In the middle of his college career, he stopped to serve a two-year mission to the Philippines. Later, he and his wife, Rebecca, married and are now the parents of four children. They enjoy fishing, birdwatching, and gardening together. Jim Edwards is an exceptional example of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Thank you for singing that hymn. I know it's a little odd. We've, we've come and gone from Independence Day and I guess Pioneer Day is coming up and maybe that puts a little patriotic feel, but uh, just thought it'd be nice to sing that hymn and get in the mood and the mindset of this great nation. Um, I, the topics that the speakers this summer have been speaking on <clears throat> have centered on when we've seen the hand of the Lord in our own lives. And as I pondered that, uh, I felt inspired maybe to adjust it just a little bit and not really address, even though there are instances that I'd love to share sometime and maybe another setting, but the hand of the Lord in the formation of this great nation and the hand of the Lord in the restoration of the church. When I think of the times that I have felt the reality of God the most, for some reason, at least for me, it's when I am learning about the founding of our nation and the founding of our church. That's when I feel the reality of God the most, that I know there's a God. And so that's going to be kind of the focus with a greater emphasis on the Lord's hand in the founding of America. This inspiration, I think, has been prompted by uh, my wife and I being gone <clears throat> for the last several weeks. Uh, we had a family vacation in Europe. We've never done anything like that in all our lives. And uh, for three weeks, we were in Europe and had the chance to see a lot of great places and uh, just is remarkable. And then a short five-day intermission, and then my wife and I had the chance to go to the East Coast and see some of the U.S. history sites in Boston and Plymouth and Concord and, and, uh, and then the church history sites in New York, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. So we normally wouldn't have planned those two things together so closely, but it just provided a unique perspective where I saw the hand of the Lord in Europe on that stage and the hand of the Lord in the Americas, in the United States of America, in uh, bringing about this great nation and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so I'd kind of like to share just a few things, if I may, to start with. Um, some of you may have heard the, the phrase or the term American exceptionalism. Just for fun, raise your hand if you've heard that term before. Unfortunately, I think the way that term American exceptionalism is being used in our day and age has probably not been used correctly. In fact, it may portray this idea 
that Americans think that we're better than every other nation in the world. And, and that's not the case. That's not what American exceptionalism means. And so I'd like to read you something. Uh, some of you may know or heard of Rush Limbaugh, recently passed away. He said this about American exceptionalism. It does not mean that we Americans are better than anyone else. It does not mean that there is something uniquely different about us as human beings compared to other people in the world. It does not mean that we as a country have never faced problems of our own. American exceptionalism and greatness means that America is special because it is different from all other countries in history. It is a land built on true freedom and individual liberty, <clears throat> and it defends both around the world. The role of the United States is to encourage individuals to be the best that they can be, to try to improve their lives, reach their goals, and make their dreams come true. In most parts of the world, dreams never become more than dreams. In the United States, they come true every day. There are so many stories of Americans who started with very little, yet dreamed big, worked very hard, and became extremely successful. The sad reality is that since the beginning of time, most citizens of the world have not been free. For hundreds and thousands of years, many people in other civilizations and countries were servants to their kings, leaders, and government. It didn't matter how hard these people worked to improve their lives, because their lives were not their own. They often feared for their lives and could not get out from under the ruling class, no matter how hard they tried. Many of these people lived and continued to live in extreme poverty with no clean water, limited food, and none of the luxuries that we often take for granted. Many citizens in the world were punished, sometimes severely, for having their own ideas, beliefs, and hopes for a better future. The United States of America is unique because it is the exception to all of this. Our country is the first country ever to be founded on the principle that all human beings are created equal as free people. The founders of this phenomenal country believed that all people were born to be free as individuals. And so they established a government and leadership that recognized and established this for the first time ever in the world. America is a place where the individual person serves himself and his family, not the king or ruling class or government. America is a place where you can think, believe, and express yourself as you want. You can dream as big as you can, and nothing is holding you back. That's what American exceptionalism is. It's an exception to everything that's ever happened in any other country in the history of the world. And so I hope that that's clear in our minds as we, as we look at the Lord's hand in establishing this great nation. So I've, I've titled it The Orchestrating Hand of the Founding of Our Nation. Uh, in an orchestra, I played in the orchestra in the intro. You heard I played the string bass. Anyone else in here played the string bass before? Any violinists? Violas? Cellos? Really? All right. Who's always wanted to play the cello? All right. Go home and ask your mommy if you can get a cello and start practicing. <laughs> we got to get more strings here. Uh, in an orchestra, you've got great players, and, and, uh, and just like a good conductor in an orchestra calls out certain players to do certain things, the Lord has done that. And one of the key players in the founding of our nation starts with Christopher Columbus. So our family had the privilege of going to Genoa, Italy, where Christopher Columbus was born in 1451. 
And he was, and Genoa is that place, is one of the most important seaports in all of Italy. So Columbus would have grown up, so this is right out from where we were staying, right on the ocean there in Genoa. And I woke up in the morning and there's a ship coming in just like they have for hundreds and hundreds of years. It still today is one of the most important seaports in all of Italy and, and really Europe for that matter. And so it's just awesome to see this, the, these seaports uh, with all these ships coming in. This is his actual house, the front and the back. Isn't that cozy? Um, 500 years old. Now, just to give you a little history, I think in the 1680s, the French bombed Italy and some, some war. And so the house actually got destroyed. They rebuilt it right on the foundation. They knew what it looked like, and so they just rebuilt it again. So this is kind of a rebuilt version, but right there on that spot, Columbus lived from age four to 14. Now you can imagine living right by the ocean at this important seaport that he would have seen ships coming in and ships going out. He would have gone to the marketplace and heard the stories from the sailors of their adventures. His dad wanted him to be a weaver like him, but the only thing that Christopher Columbus would be weaving is his dreams of sailing in the ocean. And so there he was, uh, longing for the sea with an insatiable appetite to go west. He wanted to discover a route to the Indies. When they say the Indies, we're talking China and Japan. Previously, they would always have to go around Africa, which was long and kind of dangerous of a journey. And so that was, that was the goal and that was the hope. <clears throat> uh, right up the road in Genoa from his house was the church that he worshipped at. By the way, anybody been to Europe just for fun? Aren't the churches and cathedrals just amazing? If you see a church that was built like 200 years ago, you kind of go, right? It's just you scoff at it. Five or 600 years is not too, too old of a church. So here's this church that Christopher Columbus would have learned his first lessons about faith in Jesus Christ. There he would have understood some things about the Holy Ghost and read scriptures about those things and worshiped. And so he had this deep religious conviction and faith in his heart, accompanied with a great desire to sail, to sail the ocean. And uh, that combination led, and by a, a series of events that I wish we had time to, to talk about, and, and in fact, going to a, a, the country of Portugal and then, and then going to Spain and finally securing from Spain the funds and, and the resources to be able to go and, and try to find this Western route. And uh, <clears throat> if I may, uh, let's, let's take a look at, again, the Lord's hand in this whole thing. And, and I, I spend some time on this because, like American exceptionalism, I think we're not taught properly these days. For some reason, there's a strange narrative that's crept into our land. And we've replaced Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day, which we're all about Indigenous Peoples, right? We love and support that idea, too. But Columbus was such a key player in the founding of this nation. And th let's look and see what the Lord says about him in 1 Nephi chapter 13. Uh, and just for the sake that we're recording, I wish this was more like a, a classroom. Um, I'll just read it so that when we do this podcast, it, it can be nice and clear on that. So, um, okay, 1 Nephi 13, 10 through 12. And this is, by the way, Nephi, right? Nephi had this awesome vision of our land. He saw America and kind of how it got uh, founded and the hand of the Lord in it. 
So starting in verse 10, and it came to pass that I looked and beheld many waters and they divided the Gentiles from the seed of my brethren. The Gentiles meaning Europe and the seed of his brethren were the Lamanites that remained, you know, at the time Christopher Columbus came. Verse 11, it came to pass that the angel said unto me, behold, the wrath of God is upon the seed of thy brethren. They had some tough times, didn't they? Those Lamanites. Verse 12, and I looked and beheld a man among the Gentiles who was separated by the seed of my brethren by the many waters. And I beheld the spirit of God that it came down and wrought upon the man. And he went forth upon the many waters, even unto the seed of my brethren who were in the promised land. Somehow Nephi is able to see, and, and here's an interesting side note. Uh, you know how the Holy Ghost comes in the form of a dove? Since you can't see the Holy Ghost, I wonder if that's always been the way the Lord helps people in visions like this recognize that, oh, the Holy Ghost came upon them. Maybe there was a dove that, I have no idea how this was depicted, but somehow Nephi was able to discern that the Holy Ghost came upon Columbus. Columbus would later write to the king and queen of Spain who gave him the resources to, uh, to sail. He wrote, Our Lord unlocked my mind, sent me upon the sea, and gave me fire for the deed. Those who heard of my enterprise called it foolish, mocked me, and laughed. But who can doubt but the Holy Ghost inspired me? He felt it. Nephi saw it. And the Lord testified that he was with him in this, in this experience. Well, what would follow then? Of course, in 1492 is when they sailed. And uh, in October, uh, they had gone a certain distance and his crew was getting uneasy. And they were this close to mutiny. Because there's a point of no return, right? Where you've only got so many supplies on a ship and you go out so far and you say, okay, we have to see land really soon because we only have enough supplies to get us back where we came from. Or if we know there's land just around the corner, that's fine. But they didn't know that. This was all new territory, right? So they were about to mutiny because they hadn't seen any sign of land. And, and Columbus pleaded with his crew, give me 48 hours. And if we don't see land, we'll go back home. Well, just before the 48 hours ended, they, they spotted land. And that's a miracle in and of itself. I think the first place they landed in the Americas was the Bahamas. And then there would be three more expeditions of Columbus. And, uh, and then that would follow with the colonization of people from Europe, which would be the prelude to our nation being formed. And so what a critical, important thing that, that happened here. Um, did Columbus make some mistakes? Yeah. Were there some things that happened or he would change if he could? You bet. I found a resource that I just wanted to kind of share with you. Raise your hand. Have you guys read any of Tim Ballard's books? He's got several books, The Lincoln Hypothesis, Washington Hypothesis. I'll be reading just a couple of things from that in just a minute. Uh, and The Pilgrim Hypothesis. I think he does an awesome job of treating very fairly uh, some commentary about Columbus, including his mistakes, but maintaining the fact that he was inspired of God and that this was the Lord working through him for an inspired purpose. And so I love that perspective. So I just invite you to, to consider using that if you're interested in kind of getting a better understanding of Columbus. That's in Deseret Bookstore. Yes, it's in Deseret Book. Thank you, Eric. Yep. Okay, there's our first member of the orchestra, Christopher Columbus.
Now I'd like to, to shift gears to an obscure young lady that maybe some of you have never heard of. Raise your hand if you have heard of Joan of Arc. Raise your hand if you haven't, and it's okay. That's awesome. I'm excited for you to learn about Joan of Arc. Um, our travels in Europe took us to France, and we wanted to kind of go off the beaten path. Yes, we got to see all the cool things. We got to see the Eiffel Tower sparkle. Has anyone seen the Eiffel Tower sparkle? <laughs> uh, pretty cool, pretty cool. Um, but we wanted to see some things that were a little more inspiring. And so we actually studied from uh, the life of Joan of Arc. There's a BYU TV special on the Joan of Arc. It's an hour and 15 minutes long. Elder Holland is, is on that, and it's not produced by the church. Uh, I think it's produced by somebody else. Uh, but Elder Holland is on it, and, uh, and Elder Casse, who is a French general authority, they, they share some commentary, and it's really good. And so I invite you to consider that BYU TV uh, Joan of Arc special. I got that. Yeah, it's good. And so, uh, so we went to some of the sites where Joan of Arc had some, some experiences that I'd like to just tell you about. And again, we're looking at the Lord's hand in the formation of this great nation. And you think, what does an obscure girl from France have to do with America? This was a cool thing that I learned that I'm excited to share with you. She was born in 1412 to a peasant family in Northeast France in the middle of the Hundred Years' War that France was having with England. You might have heard of that in history, but there was a Hundred Year War between, between those two nations. Um, at the age of 13, she started having some visions and heavenly manifestations, including some interactions with what she said was with Michael the Archangel. Pretty amazing stuff. And again, that's just 13 years old. She felt called by these heavenly messengers for two tasks to help deliver uh, France out of the threat of England. Uh, they were this close to becoming overtaken by the, by the English. And, uh, and, and at this time, uh, uh, Charles VII was just a prince. His father, Charles VI, had passed away uh, previously. Uh, he died. Uh, mad is what they said. They, the historians look back and think that maybe he had schizophrenia or something and eventually died. Because circumstances were so difficult and so bleak and they were struggling so much, Prince Charles VII just didn't feel like he could take the crown and be the king. And so she felt compelled to help him become the king and to help them have some victories. Uh, at age 17... And I wish we had time to talk about how it all came about. Think about this. How did men feel about women back then? And, and what were the likelihood that a woman in, in any period of history, including today, would become a leader of an entire army? Um, and especially back then. And so it's, it's just miraculous. You've got to watch the special to kind of understand that just a little bit more. At age 17... She was put in charge of an army and sent to Orleans, where they were under siege by the English. Now, when she was sent there, uh, there was one bridge that crossed a big river that went into the city. And uh, because the English controlled that bridge, they had to figure out another way to get to the city. And so there was an army already established there from, from France that were trying to get across the river but the, the wind was so incredibly against them that it was impossible for them to sail across the river. 
Joan of Arc shows up and then we start to see some miracles happen. She proclaims that the God of heaven had sent her and that the Lord's gonna bless them. And in that moment, the wind shifted the other direction and they were able to get across the river. They were able to do battle, relieve them of the siege and they had a, a huge victory in Orleans, which was kind of the turning point of this hundred years war, which eventually led to the, Fran the, to the French being able to retain their sovereignty. A short while later in the cathedral at Reims, they have a commemorative statue of the Joan of Arc there in Reims, France. This uh, really cool cathedral, uh, again, like five, 600 years old. <clears throat> uh, after that victory, Prince Charles VII was coronated in that very cathedral. And so there's a painting that depicts this with Joan of Arc standing nearby. Because of her, this event happened. And because of, of all of this that Joan of Arc did, France remained sovereign. Um, as a side note, and I wanted to show you a little clip, but I was having a little trouble having it broadcast here. Um, as a side note, Joan of Arc eventually was captured by the English, and she was interrogated by the English in a French town of Rowan, and I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. French speakers, sorry, that was as hick as it gets right there. Uh, in Rowan, Rowan, something like that. If you hold your lips just right, it comes out kind of Frenchy, right? And, and they were sympathetic to the English. And one of the bishops there interrogated her. And of course, he was already biased against her because he was pro-English. And she was, of course, fighting against the English and had been such a menace to England uh, that they found her eventually guilty of heresy because she claimed these visions that she had. And the way she described them went against what they believed was according to their doctrine. And so she was eventually put in this prison here, this castle, and this again in, in Rowan. Uh, all that's left of it is the tower part of it, and so it's kind of cool to see. And she was actually placed in this tower, and uh, eventually she would be burned at the stake um, in the public square at age 19. Um, Sisters that are 19, would you just please stand up? Any sisters that are 19, please don't be shy. We just want to just imagine this. Yeah, please stand up. Sisters, take a look at this, you guys. Thank you. That's, that's how old we're talking about. This is a young adult that we would do well to follow her example. Uh, I, I wish I had the little quote. Elder Holland said something like this, that she said in her dying moments, as bad as death is, and as bad as dying young is, there's nothing worse than dying without courage and conviction. And that's a lesson we learned from a young adult woman in the 1400s. And so I'm grateful for, for her example. Now again, what does this have to do with America? As I learned about Joan of Arc and as we went to these places, I thought, why does the Lord care about France beating England? Poor England, they're always getting ganged up on by the Lord, right? <laughs> it didn't work out for them during the Revolutionary War either. Why was the Lord in favor of France here against England? And it wasn't until a couple of days later when my family had the privilege of being at the Palace of Versailles just outside of Paris where you have, I think, was it King Louis XIII through the Sixteenth? I think that, uh, that, that, was their, that was their palace during their reigns. Um, in the Palace of Versailles, they have a hall called the Hall of Battles. 
In fact, I think I've got a picture here. Oh, there's our, our friend, the bishop. Uh, so they have this giant hall with these huge paintings. I mean, these are massive paintings. And most of them were done in like the 1700s. Just crazy. And they have all these paintings starting with Charlemagne. Was that like seven or 800 AD? Like way back when in France's history. Charlemagne all the way to Napoleon in the early 1800s, uh, showing the victories that France had in, in all of their wars. They had a cool depiction of Joan of Arc in, in her victory at Orleans in uh, the 1400s. But then right across from Joan of Arc was a painting. And then my answer came, why the Lord cared about helping France win this victory. This is the siege of Yorktown. You might recall Benjamin Franklin went to Paris during the Revolutionary War to solicit the help of the French. And because of the aid that the French gave us, we were successful at Yorktown, which became a pretty decisive part of the Revolutionary War, which eventually led to our victory. Had France been overtaken by the English, there would have been no France to call on to help us in our time of need. So again, you see the orchestrating hand of the Lord in the forming of our great nation. And it all came because of a 19-year-old young woman with integrity. It's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> next stop in the orchestra. Let's go to the east coast of the United States. We've got Plymouth Rock. Not too far south of Boston, maybe a, an hour south of Boston. Uh, raise your hand if you have ancestors that, that uh, came on the Mayflower and landed at Plymouth Rock. Isn't that so cool? There's like 20 of us in here. Um, I did too, and, and this sounds crazy, but I have seven direct ancestors that came on the Mayflower. And I bet some of us are cousins. Eric and I are ninth cousins, twice removed. <laughs> um, this was a significant event in and of itself. There's all kinds of miracles that I wish we had time to, to delve into. Uh, just the miracles of having the Indians be so helpful and helping them know how to survive that winter and how to plant crops in the, in the following spring and uh, early summer. Got it. And so that is, is, is a miracle in and of itself. But I, I wanted to just look and see again, what's the Lord's hand in it? It's not just Columbus that Nephi saw. Let's look at 1 Nephi 13, okay. 13. All right, and we're going to give everyone just a second to turn there, and I'm going to sit close to you, Eric, so that they can hear us. Why don't you stand up by me? And read it nice and loud so that a microphone picks it up. All right, verse 13 of 1 Nephi 13. Go ahead. And it comes to pass that I behave in the Spirit of God, that it's swung upon other mountains, and they went full out of touch if up on the mid-waters. Nice job. Thanks, Eric. Good job. Isn't that cool? Nephi sees other Gentiles that, that, that they left England and came across the great waters and they too were wrought upon by the Holy Ghost. Again, how Nephi could identify that the Holy Ghost was working with them. Maybe it was that sign of a dove. I don't know. But he could dis discern that they were also influenced, led by God to come. And, uh, and so that's, that's another cool orchestration of the Lord's hand in this whole thing. There's the rock. That, you guys know Brother and Sister Fife? Anyone had Brother Fife for seminary or institute? Uh, we had the chance to go on the trip with them. There's the rock that's got a fun, unique history. The, the pilgrims did not stamp 1620 on it. <laughs> that was done after the fact. And we don't really even know if they actually set their foot on that very rock. But anyway, it's a cool rock nonetheless. 
Um, there's a replica of the Mayflower. It's kind of to the dimensions that, that, they, uh, that, they, that they feel it was, and it was just really cool to be there. Um, <clears throat> well, one story about the Mayflower where you, where you see the hand of the Lord here, and this ties into the restoration. Who in here has heard of John Howland? And are you a descendant of John Howland? I think so. We've got a descendant there. Any other John Howland descendants? I do. That's awesome. Can you tell us a story? Do you remember? Okay, I'll share it. I've got the microphone anyway. So, uh, John Howland was on the Mayflower, and one of the days that they, he was up on, on the top deck or whatever, or wherever they stood, and uh, I, I think a storm arose, and he got knocked overboard in the jostling of the ship. And in desperation, on his way overboard, he reached out and grabbed a rope and fell into the ocean held on to the rope and was being drugged behind the ship. Miraculously, he held on and people were able to pull him up and rescue him. Now you might say, big deal if John Hallen had drowned. And that's a sad thought if you think that. Uh, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. Every soul, right? But this one in particular, what was so important about John Howland? If You can't see this probably. But here is a genealogy chart with John Howland at the bottom. He's got three children and their descendants. We had the likes of uh, Richard Nixon, George Bush, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and uh, Winston Churchill, right? These are some pretty important people that are direct descendants of John Howland. But did you notice this over here? Joseph. Emma Hill and Joseph Smith. Had he let go of that rope or had he drowned, Yes, these others would be tragic, but the Lord had his eye on the great restorer of his church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Brigham Young would say this about John Howland, uh, or about this whole thing. Okay, one sec. It was decreed in the councils of eternity, long before the foundations of the earth were laid, that he, Joseph Smith, should be the man in the last dispensation of this world to bring forth the word of God to the people and receive the fullness of the keys and the power of the priesthood of the Son of God. The Lord had his eyes upon him and upon his father and upon his father's fathers and upon his, uh, their progenitors clear back to Abraham and from Abraham to the flood, from the flood to Enoch and from Enoch to Adam. He has watched that family and that blood as it has circulated from its fountain to the birth of that man. He was foreordained in eternity to preside over this last dispensation. And so again, you have the Lord's hand intervening where it needs to intervene, directing and saving and, and rescuing uh, so that the restoration and the formation of this nation could be brought about. I thought that was just kind of a cool little side note from the Mayflower experience. <clears throat> There's others that Nephi now sees in vision. Let's go now to Third Nephi, or sorry, First Nephi 13. We're going to read verses 16 through 19. Yes. All right. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles who had gone forth out of captivity did humble themselves before the Lord. And the power of the Lord was with them. And I beheld that their mother Gentiles were gathered together upon the waters and also upon the land to battle against them. So this is England, right? Britain. 
is gathering their, their armies together. And I beheld that the power of God was with them, meaning the colonists, and also that the wrath of God was upon all those that were gathered together against them to battle. And I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles that had gone out of captivity were delivered by the power of God out of the hands of all other nations. God's hand was in it. Now, just as kind of a side note here, Joan of Arc, you know what she did to be victorious? This 19-year-old and probably 18-year-old at the time of Orleans uh, got every, uh, every one of those men, and you can imagine vile men in the army. No offense to us guys, but sometimes when they're in the army and you don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're cavemen, right? And she had them all confess their sins and take communion. There were some that were angry and said, we're not a church choir, we're an army. And she insisted. And she had a way of getting people to do things. It's, it's incredible. We can't even explain the kind of woman that she was. But she had them turn their souls to God. The same is true with George Washington. He declared days of fasting and prayer in preparation for the victories that they had. And so we see this pattern of the Lord's hand for those that turn to him. So what does this have to do with you and I? If he did this for them, don't you think you and I, in our moments of need, if we'll turn to the Lord in faith, believing that he loves us and that he knows us and he knows what we stand in need of, that he'll come to our aid and our rescue in his way and in his timing. And sometimes that's in the form of friends. One of the most inspiring things for me to see as an institute director is to see my students reaching out to other students and blessing them and strengthening them and being with them when they're going through their hard times. And that's just inspiring to see. And I know that God has sent some of you to rescue some of you that are in this room. And I'm, I'm humbled by that. Well, the Spirit of the Lord was with this army, was with George Washington. I wanted to share just, you've, you've got the idea in Boston of, of uh, Bunker Hill. Um, I had a direct ancestor that fought on Bunker Hill with his two brothers. One of his brothers came out unscathed. His other brother was killed. And my ancestor was wounded and limped for the rest of his life. And so for me to stand there with, with my wife at this sacred spot, which, by the way, the American colonists lost, but at a huge cost to the, the British Army. In fact, here's a little sign, a commemorative sign. By the way, Abigail Adams, the decisive day has come on which the fate of America depends. And uh, just to quote what you can't probably see that, I'll read it for you. This high ground of Breed's Hill, which they would later call Bunker Hill, bound the American colonies to the cause of independence. An open field here, once located, commanded this entire area. On the night of June 16, 1775, two months after the fighting at Lexington and Concord, 1,200 colonial militiamen quickly built a small earthen fort. As dawn broke on June 17th, the fort stood in clear view of the British Army in Boston. British cannon from ship and from land opened fire. Some 2,200 British soldiers closed across the Charles River and assaulted the hill. After several bloody attacks, the British troops overran the colonists. The British forces won this ground, but it cost nearly half their men. So it was here that they realized that this is going to be a tougher thing than they thought. So 
Washington takes his army and retreats off that hill and, uh, and, 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 just, and strategically wants to take another hill uh, south of Boston called Dorchester Heights. And uh, if they could get this strategic location up on the hill, that would, that would be an important, uh, uh, an important thing for the Americans. But to do so was really difficult because there was no cover and the British were in plain view of it. And the second they saw them ascend it, they would send their troops and wipe them out because, in fact, uh, Washington's troops were always outnumbered. They didn't have as much ammunition and weapons. Do you remember the line, don't fire till you see the white in their eyes? That was at Bunker Hill because they had such limited ammunition. They had to wait till they were close to where they knew they, that their bullet would, would count. And so that's where that phrase came from. And so they were struggling. Things were not looking good. <clears throat> so here we have the four miracles that happened at Dorchester Heights. And at this point, uh, I'm going to just take a little bit from uh, Tim Ballard's Washington Hypothesis where he kind of spells this out. Uh, the first miracle, you guys heard of Henry Knox before? Henry Knox asked George Washington. He heard that there were some cannons and ammunition at Fort Ticonderoga, which was over 300 miles away, which the British had once used there and abandoned. And, uh, but they didn't even know for sure. George Washington said, yes, go get it. So he goes the 300 miles, 300 plus miles to get it. The problem was, is that uh, how do you get 120,000 pounds of cannon and art artillery across a muddy, you know what I'm saying? I mean, this is difficult. So Henry Knox, again, this is where he turned to the Lord. Henry Knox, he, he wrote his wife and, and kind of told, what what told her what his schedule was. He would daily rise early in the morning before the sun and immediately with part of the regiment, with his, with his men, attend prayers, sing a psalm, or read a chapter in the Bible. Do you see the strength that turning to God gave them in their extremities here? Um, and so that's how he employed his faith. So his plan was to build large sleds to drag those things 350 miles back to Boston. The problem, there's no snow. So he exercised faith and prayed to the Lord and said, I'm going to build the sleds. I'm going to do my part and I'm going to count on you to do your part. And sure enough, they waited a few days and on Christmas day of all days, a blizzard came. Not only did it provide enough snow for them to use those sleds to drag up and down the hills all the way to Boston, but the Hudson River froze over, allowing them to cross that much easier than trying to do that with ferries or other, or other means. And so it was miraculous. Within two months of sending him, he had, George Washington had cannons. But there's a, so that's the first miracle. Weather, the Lord's hand is in it, right? The second miracle, how in the world do you get 120,000 pounds of artillery and cannons up to the top of Dor Dorchester Heights without being seen by the British? It's impossible. And so, miracle number two. <clears throat> Ready for this? At midnight on March 2nd, 1776, Washington commanded his troops to launch a barrage of cannon and mortar fire from their position outside of Boston upon the British inside of Boston. So the British were holed up in Boston, right? They, they had it all secured. The British immediately returned the gesture. The exchange continued on and off through March 4th, but did little damage. Washington's intention, after all, was not to destroy, 
but to cause a loud distraction while his men, armed with Knox's cannon, advanced on the unoccupied heights of Dorchester. This they attempted on the night of March 4th. With some 4,000 troops and hundreds of wagons carrying thousands of pounds of weaponry, taking this high ground in secret and directly in front of the British position seemed an impossible feat. So what would the Lord do? He would send an interesting fog that covered the valley and above the hill was perfectly clear where they wanted to get to. And so they were able to, in that fog, during the nighttime and in the fog, the British could not observe it and they were able to ascend to the top of Dorchester Heights. In the morning when the fog lifted, the British were blown away that 4,000 men and 120,000 pounds of cannon and artillery were at the top of Dorchester Heights. Pretty incredible. Miracle number two. Still we have the problem of Boston being so tightly enclosed. It wasn't until after the battle that, that Washington, when he came down, so by the way, I don't want to give a spoiler alert, but the British left Boston. Woohoo! <laughs> By the way, I was in a gospel doctrine class in a married student ward when I first got married. And the teacher, and I didn't think about it, he was from England going to school. And uh, the teacher teaching gospel doctrine just said, hey, what are some inspiring moments? I can't say it in a good accent. What are some inspiring moments in, anyway, in your life? And I said, I'm just inspired by the Revolutionary War and... <laughs> I didn't even think about it. And he said, well, it's not so inspiring to me. <laughs> and I said, oh, I am so sorry. I didn't mean anything by that. But I really am inspired by all of this. And uh, so George Washington, when he left Dorchester Heights and went into Boston after the British had left, he saw how secure and how well fortified Boston was that 20,000 of his men couldn't have taken 1,000 men in that well fortified Boston. Had they stayed, it would have been over. But somehow the Lord crushed their spirits and they left. How do they do it? There's two more miracles. <laughs> Miracle number three. <clears throat> so, uh, let's see. Oh, thank you. Good job. <laughs> On March 5th, General Howe, he's the British general of the British Army, commanded his troops to jump into war boats, cross the harbor. So this is the next day after they got up to Dorchester Heights. Cross the harbor and attack Washington, who stood bravely upon Dorchester. As the British troops pushed off into Boston Harbor in their advance toward the Americans, God launched miracle number three with one of Washington's officers called the Hurricane. Uh, and then he quotes from a book, uh, David McCullough, 1776, another awesome book. If you haven't read it, I invite you to consider that as well. Um, but he quotes from McCullough uh, saying this, what had been an abnormally warm, pleasant day had changed dramatically. By nightfall, a storm raged with hail mixed with snow and sleet. Windows were smashed. Fences blew over. Two of the British transports were blown ashore. The American Lieutenant Isaac Bangs, who was among those freezing at their post on the high ground of Dorchester, it wasn't easy for them either, right? He called it the worst storm, quote, that I ever was exposed to. <laughs> Clearly, there would be no British assault that night. It was incredible. The thing about this is that storms like that, hurricanes, rarely hit New England. They hit the East Coast, especially in the Carolinas and stuff like that, but up in the New England part, rarely hits. And if it does ever hit, it's always in the fall, fall season when the hurricanes come. Rarely do they ever come in the spring. So clearly this was, again, the hand of the Lord 
in preventing that from happening. While they're recovering from that, miracle number four, smallpox breaks out in the Boston city with, with their, all their soldiers. General Howe, this is what he writes in his journal. He says, I could promise myself little success by attacking them under all the disadvantages I had had to encounter. Wherefore, I judged it most advisable to prepare for the evacuation of the town. And so the British left. It's a miracle. Nephi saw the hand of the Lord upon these colonists in preparation for the greatest nation on earth so that it could be a beacon to the world of freedom. Um, George Washington would say this later in a letter to one of his brothers. He explained that now he realized that much blood was saved and a very important blow prevented. Washington called it a remarkable interposition of providence and admitted that it was carried out by heaven for a wise purpose. And that purpose is the coming forth of the church of Jesus Christ on the earth again after a long night of apostasy. And so I'm just humbled and I'm touched and I'm inspired and I feel the reality of God when I study these things and just bear my witness that God's hands in it. Two scriptures to close. Doctrine and Covenants section 101, 77 through 80. According to the laws, and this is the Lord speaking in a revelation to Joseph Smith, according to the laws and constitution of the people, which I have suffered to be established and should be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh, according to just and holy principles, that every man, every man may act in doctrine and principle pertaining to futurity, according to the moral agency which I have given unto him, that every man may be accountable for his own sins in the day of judgment. Therefore, it is not right that any man should be in bondage one to another. And for this purpose have I established the constitution of this land by the hands of wise men whom I have raised up unto this very purpose and redeemed the land by the shedding of blood. Our Savior Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. He's also the author of the Constitution and those principles of freedom that have made this land so exceptional. Alma 61, do you remember the interchange between Moroni and Pahoran? When Moroni says, we're going to come in and wipe you out if you don't help us. And Pahoran says, I'm so sorry, dear brother. We've had some trouble of our own. Let me know what I can do to help. And then just that fun interchange, right? I love Pahoran's great spirit. This is Alma 61, and we'll close with this. Verses 14 and 15. Pahoran says to Moroni, Therefore, my beloved brother Moroni, let us resist evil, and whatsoever evil we cannot resist with our words, such as rebellion and dissensions, let us resist them with our swords, that we may retain our freedom, that we may rejoice in the great privilege of our church and in the cause of our Redeemer and our God. Therefore, come unto me speedily with a few of your men and leave the remainder in the charge of Lehi and Teancum. Give unto them power to conduct the war in that part of the land according to the Spirit of God. And here's the principle, which is also the Spirit of freedom. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of freedom, which is in them. 
Well, I love that phrase. I bear witness that our Father in Heaven and our Savior Jesus Christ are gods of freedom. That it was their hand, not luck, it was their hand that brought about the formation of this nation, which was impossible on their own. It was the hand of the Lord that brought about the events of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the church of Jesus Christ could be on the earth again in its fullness. The other part of this trip to Europe that my family took was to go to some obscure villages in France and Germany where my ancestors lived and died. I have sixth great grandparents that were buried in some of these little towns. I'm certain that no tourist has ever set foot in any of these towns. Not one person spoke one word of English. And yet I felt the Spirit witness to me that these people that lived during the Dark Ages, when the fullness of the gospel wasn't on the earth, because of what happened in the forming of this nation and the foundation of this church that was formed, those ancestors of mine have had their temple work done. And they have the opportunity to accept everything that I've accepted and that I can be sealed to them forever. And this is what this is all about. This is what America is all about. This is why we send missionaries all over the world. I bear witness that God's hand was in it and He will be in our lives. And I also hope and pray that you and I will strive to be the answer to someone else's prayer as we minister to one another. And I bear witness of that. I express my love to you wonderful young adults. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.